You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Flight on the set. Camera speed. Sound production, take one. Welcome, welcome everyone to Movie Night with Sif. I'm your host, Gabby, and guest hosting today, we have Sif's content associate, Matthew McKinney. Say hi, Matt. Hello. Today's guest is none other than Alberta-based writer, director, producer, Berkeley Brady. If you attended SIF 2022, you may have caught a screening of Berkeley's debut feature film, Dark Nature, which is now available on VOD pretty much anywhere you can stream movies. And if you attended our DGC industry series, you may have heard her speak alongside fellow panelists Laura O'Grady, Alicia Anderson, and Wendy Hiltout. But what you may not know about this Scottish Métis filmmaker is that she received her MFA in film directing at Columbia University. She's a member of the Directors Guild of Canada and used to compete as a halfpipe snowboarder, which in my view, having failed to clear the walls of a halfpipe on my snowboard many times, makes her pretty badass. Here to talk all about her film Dark Nature is Berkeley Brady. Hi, Berkeley. How are you? I'm very well. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Well, we're happy to have you. Um, I know that uh, we really, you know, to start at the beginning, wanted to talk a little bit about how you got started in film. I know you went to a very fancy film program at a very little known university called Columbia down in New York City. Uh, what was that experience like? Well, I was just hanging out with like Barack Obama when he came back <laughs> and other illustrious alumni. No, um <laughs> You know, it was really incredible, a really incredible experience, I think, especially for film to be in a city like New York or L.A., just we because we're raised on American films like most of the world. It's such a powerhouse to just sort of see how they're made, the quality of work, the craftsmen that are there just in New York at every level of production. It's good to sort of just get that exposure. I think it's really important. Um, yeah, I was going to actually, you know, sort of j- jump off of that question to ask you about your journey joining the DGC, sort of the importance of that kind of having that kind of union. You know, it's been really, really great. And it was something I wanted and I didn't know really why I wanted it. I was like, I just need to be a member because that's how I'm going to get TV jobs. And it's like, yes, you do need to be a member of the DGC to get those jobs. But it, being a member is not going to get you jobs if that makes sense. But it is a really supportive network, especially during COVID. They had um, just so many workshops that really kept me connected. And almost because being here in Alberta, we're really at a disadvantage as directors. Most jobs go to people in Ontario or BC because more shows are filmed there, especially Canadian shows, more Canadian shows are filmed there. And so they get tax credits to hire directors from those provinces. Unfortunately, that doesn't usually translate to production shooting in Alberta. They just don't really hire Albertan directors. Um, it's something that we in Alberta and the caucus here are definitely working um, towards changing. But there's sort of a misconception that if you're here, it's because like you couldn't make it in Toronto or Vancouver or something, which just isn't the truth anymore. Um, and maybe it never was, who knows, but with COVID and everyone being at home, it kind of opened the doors a bit to meetings in other cities because everything was on zoom anyway. And that was all thanks to the DGC. So I was able to become a member, um, because I directed a couple episodes of secret history of the wild west, um, which is a show on APTN by Julian black antelope. And he gave me that opportunity, which was really wonderful. And I also hounded him all the time saying, I can do this. I can do this. Give me a shot. And uh, he he did. And so thanks to that credit, I was able to get into the DGC. 
You've done work, uh, I'm kind of curious, just both as a producer and as a writer-director. Um, can you talk about the difference between those roles for you? And like, and when you ap- approach a project, is it kind of like there's a bit of a give and take in the indie film world on on working on projects and getting things made? So with your sort of filmmaking community, you're producing each other's work? Or um, do you still find that you're producing? Or have you kind of mostly slid into a, a directing role? I think it's project by project in the beginning. Um, part of what you do at Columbia or any like film school is make work. So that's what they're teaching you is how do you put a project together and what happens when you need to wear all the different hats. So when you start on like, you know, student films, um, where, you know, I did a lot of DPing um, on other projects. And then I produced a friend's project because her producer dropped out at the last minute. And so I really believed in her. I was like, I'll produce you. But I didn't have a ton of experience as a producer. So, and she had actually more as a filmmaker. So she was able to fill in the holes that I didn't have. And then I realized, wow, for her, what she needs most is just someone in her corner. Like someone who is, at after a 16-hour day, going to drive the truck with her, with the film, like film reels in the back, and sleep on the side of the road, to, you know, to like get two hours of sleep so we can make it back. Like just that person who's going to fight for you. Um, she is a filmmaker and I think I'm a filmmaker who just needs that sort of camaraderie. There's people who are like, well, I don't need that. I know I'm totally great. I just need you to make these calls and get this done. So I think a lot of that is finding about out about what kind of worker you are and who you work well with. And, um, but what I did find is each project I learned, like, what does it take to make this happen? And what can't I do and how important it is to find people who can do what they do. And now I'm just like, great. I want to work with everyone who's better than me, like a better editor than I am a storyteller, a better cinematographer, a better other producer, just like find people who have more experience and who I think are just like way better than me and try to bring those people together and just let them do what they do. And with the bigger projects like Dark Nature, uh, my producing partner, Michael Peterson, he's got a lot more experience with feature films and the paperwork, the the distributors, the sort of business side. That's just, he's very, very good at that. And he's a director too. So he, I, I was a big part of the producing before we started shooting in terms of just like getting the grants, writing, meetings, programs, development. And then when I was actually shooting, I sort of took the producer hat off and did not tried my best not to do any producing and now we're still doing like I'm still doing producing work um that he still does more of but I still like there's still papers to sign things to read promotions things to check up audits like it's sort of never ending so I think yeah producing has there's so many segments of it and each piece is necessary. <laughs> you can't take even small pieces. You can't take out. So um, I did watch Dark Nature yesterday. Oh, awesome. And it was amazing. I've never actually wow. really seen a film like this before um, where it's like it's horror, but it's also dives really deep into sort of trauma and like interpersonal female relationships and abusive relationships. Why was it important for you to discuss those themes through this film? I think... Um maybe just the zeitgeist Mm -hmm. 
it felt like after a few years after Me Too and trauma being in something that we talk about now, because I think even 10 years ago, we just weren't talking about it the way we talk yeah. about now. And maybe there's still, what did I hear about trauma recently? It was like, it's not a, that an event happens. It's, it's how you process it. Like that makes it traumatic. So there could be something that could happen to one person, but they process it in a really healthy way or, and they just move through it. That could have done that. It's just a bad event that happened to them, but there's other people who it, it doesn't really process through their body. It stays in their body and becomes trauma. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, that's like why there's soldiers who can go to war and they don't get PTSD and others who do. It seems to be like there's so many factors at play. Um, so I think after talking about trauma and domestic violence and Me Too, I was interested in like, then what? It's like, great, we've talked about it, identified, you know, perpetrators or like people are standing up and saying no more of this. But for those people who go through it, like, then what? They're still living with it. Yeah. And what is living with trauma? in the long term really about and I think it's really hard and so I wanted to make I think horror is a really good metaphor for that just it's like you may be doing your your like healing work and you may be addressing your issues but that doesn't mean that more issues aren't going to come at you and maybe right now it feels like on the planet that feels really apt because of every, everything that happens there's like now another bigger thing it's like global warming oh more fires more avalanches war this it's just like whoa whoa like we're just trying to deal with one thing at a time here and it's like oh the world doesn't really care that's just not how it is it's like more more comes so horror felt like such a good way to talk about that um so speaking of sort of leaning into this horror element I think horror was you know a really interesting choice but like ultimately really added so much to it exactly what you were saying sort of the trials and tribulations of getting over trauma and representing sort of the big bad monster that lives inside of you um did you set out to sort of when you're tackling these very serious themes make a horror or make a drama or was it maybe not one or the other oh i definitely want to make a horror okay. yes yeah. yeah and then yeah. did it sort I of wanted just blood and into? gore a blood and gore are you a blood and gore fan <laughs> I am. I, I if I had a bigger budget, you would have seen a lot more blood. That yeah. monster was scary though. I really liked it looked great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, the monster is incredible. And that was made by two Calgary-based artists, um, Kyra McPherson and Jen Crichton, the costume designer and special effects makeup artists, um, each of them, and they they made that. That is totally their creation. It was stunning. So, you know, sort of going back to this like group therapy notion you did mention sort of in our previous DGC interview you did a group therapy session with a professional with your actors sort of in character to explore the backstories prior to shooting why and like did that help yeah I think it helped a ton and if we'd had a bigger budget we could have brought the actors out earlier done that and then I would have I recorded those sessions and was actually working on um, a script from them while we were shooting, hoping we could like kind of recreate some of that and then flash to some of those, what they said, because mm -hmm. what the actors invented and the backstories that they brought and the dynamics that came out from that session were so juicy and so good. And it was such a good way to, for them to start working together. Cause they were really like flexing. They're like, Oh, well I'll watch my character. Like I'm going to cry. I'm going to make you cry. And it was, um, I think a really good way to, I mean, the more of that you can do, I think the better. We're just so limited on these indie budgets, but 
you know, they're supposed to have been in a group for, let's say, a year. So the only character who didn't come was the character Joy, because she wasn't supposed to have been in the group. So she didn't come to that session. But the others came. And then it was really important for the actress who was playing um, the doctor to just see how a real psychologist handles when the group gets heated. When, and when people start getting kind of higher emotions. And I think as a person, her instinct was to be really nurturing and mothering because yeah. she is a mother and she's just a kind person. But as a professional, that isn't actually what you need to do. You don't need to like repair anyone or take it on. So watching her, watching the doctor, how she navigated the higher emotions that each character brought really helped the Dr. Dunley character, the actress playing Dr. Dunley and helped me it gave us a touch point so if she was let's say doing something where she'd be more nurturing to that character I'd say like hey remember what Dr. Rochelle did she she sort of like more just observed and she didn't take it on and she wasn't offended or you know tense made tense by a tense situation but this is remember what she did she'd be like oh yeah okay and then she could navigate that a lot easier so I'm hoping that if psychologists do see the movie they like what they saw with Dr. Dunley. But if she did freak out, then they would have been out of the forest way sooner and everybody would be alive. <laughs> <laughs> Not it's that true. anybody There's dies, spoiler things. alert. Yes, of course, they all get out. <laughs> um, I like on your website, you said, currently my sweet spot is in directing horror with a touch of adventure and a satisfying dash of emotion. If a film can make me laugh, scream and cry, perfection. Um, how are you feeling about this push in horror in the horror genre? I feel like in the past maybe five years or, or seven years, maybe of kind of including a little bit more of these dramatic elements. Are you kind of liking where things are going and excited about that, that push? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm a grown woman. I need a little more, like I've seen it all. I've seen all the just random, just special effects gore. Like I, I want to be invested in the characters and I think that just genre is a continually, it's always evolving. And where it is now, it's, it's, it's incorporating more. And I, I like, like a good melodrama. So I wanted there to be some melodrama. I wanted to, I think that's why we go to the movies. Like I don't go to the movie to, at this point, to just see what I see in reality. I want to see something different than reality that it allows me to feel feelings that I can't always just feel in my day-to-day -day. i um i heard that there also you know might have been some secret keeping on your part during the filming do you know what we're referring to is it that many oh. secrets berkeley that you can you have to start <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh as the director you hear it from everybody you hear it from everybody um there was a secret for the first three weeks of the six-week shoot, which was that I was pregnant. Yeah. Did you mean that secret? I sure did. <laughs> it's a pretty big secret. Especially when you're lugging equipment yeah. up a mountain and planning a movie. Oh, my gosh. What was going on there? I think it was more just the vanity. I was like, guys, I'm not normally this bloated. Like, really? <laughs> like, you just look kind of, like, bad and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> you don't look bad. You're but blooming with life. Yeah, that's what they say. Um, I try to focus on that. Um, I was in my, I just hit my second trimester the day we started shooting. Okay. So that was a day that's normally when you would, you could start telling people that you want to tell, but still it's nothing like 
secure. Anything could happen at any point in the pregnancy. And I really didn't want people to treat me differently. Or what I later found out was like, I just don't actually want to talk about what I'm to expect. Mm. I realized with being pregnant, that's something that you kind of are like, okay, here's another person who's just going to like talk a lot about what they experienced yeah. and talk, you're going to have this and you're going to have this. It's like, maybe, maybe I am, but I don't maybe want to talk about that all the time. Like it does get boring. Maybe that's a note. If you know pregnant people, <laughs> no, for sure. They want to talk about other things. Yeah. That's like the one thing. Yeah. It's the one thing I hear. Well, it's the second thing I hear pregnant women, you know, sort of gripe about, which is like, A, everyone's touching your belly without your permission. And B, everyone's giving you unsolicited advice all the time. Yeah. That's got to get it's annoying. It's a lot of listening. Plus you're it directing. does get annoying. You don't yeah, have time just, to listen yeah, to people just, give you their advice. I don't advice. have time. You're on the yeah. go. But I, I thought it was really sweet. Uh, yeah, exactly. My, uh, my cinematographer, Gerald, he's just such a gentleman. So if I would be like, jumping off something he'd be like Berkeley no oh my gosh and it was just like oh that's so sweet like it's not gonna fall out like it's it's all good like <laughs> women are running olympic things at five months pregnant and you're fine like if you're if you were lucky enough to have an easy pregnancy which I was just lucky that I had that it was great I think it, it was really um it gives you a sense of perspective too like like I have a life outside of this film that's good yeah. Yeah. And now you got a beautiful baby and a beautiful yeah. movie and nobody Aww. stopped you in the middle of it because you were pregnant. <laughs> That's, so that's right. Yeah. Get pregnant, make movies. Very I make a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I want that on a hat. Um, um, I know we talked about you liking the sort of gory creepiness of it all that you recently played a part in directing a horror anthology inspired by creepypastas called Creepypasta. For those that don't know what a creepypasta is, could you explain a little bit about it and tell us how you got involved in the project? Yeah. So creepypasta is basically like an urban legend. Hmm. Something that people like, wasn't um, the Slenderman a creepypasta? Yes. Yes. So it's sort of like something that's like an urban legend, but then it kind of takes on a life of its own. And I was brought onto the project by the producer and writer, David Bond. I call him my horror sensei because he's taught me so much about horror and he really loves mentoring, especially first time feature directors. So he was just inst really instrumental in dark nature. Um, and then, you know, he's like, okay, let's get you, get you. You got to shoot uh, a horror before dark nature. Let's go. I was like, you're right, you're right, you're right. And so uh, he wrote it, and then we just made it with um, Jill Maria Robinson and my husband and her friend David, and we just like went to my mom's house for three days, and when my mama was away, and made the movie. <laughs> my gosh! And uh, but it was nice knowing like it was always going to be part of the anthology, so it's mm -hmm. sort of nice like we're making this for this. Yeah, it's it's gonna it's gonna live somewhere, and the anthology has gone on to do really well. It was on like. A review in the New York Times recently, and it's been number one on Screenbox for a couple months. Uh, so, do you want to tell us uh, a little bit about what's coming up for you? Uh, what what kind of projects are you working on these days? Well, I am adapting the book Half Breed, which I'm actually going to Saskatoon on Friday to work with the author Maria Campbell and uh, my two producers. Um, on that, they're coming from Toronto. And um, my co-writer and creator on that, Michelle Thresh, we're really hoping she can come. We don't, we're still waiting to hear if she can come. But um, that's been a project that's been years in the making. Um, and the author is just such an incredible artist and writer and just a hero of mine. So um, 
people have been trying to adapt this book for about 30 plus years. Wow. So the fact she sort of let us actually do it and to be working with her is a really big honor. And I guess I'll find out more after this trip, sort of what the schedule is looking like, but we're still, um, we've written a feature version of it, but as we wrote that, we're like, there's just too much in this book, including the stories that were cut from the book because the book was originally 1500 pages and her editor cut it down to a novel length but the, and then they burned the pages so she had all these pages she's like what do i do with these and her editor's like let's just go we don't need it like they went to a trash bin in an alley and oh, like burned no. them because she didn't know about saving your papers now most of her papers are in like museums <laughs> and you know she's like this national treasure oh my god <laughs> um but it's interesting talking to her and just seeing like those stories are still alive in her like she's like We'll be like, well, that happened here. And I told this story. And like, so it, I'm like, well, maybe this, this adaptation, if we do a limited series, it could be a chance for her to like, for these stories that were lost to be to come back found and shared. Yeah. And it's just such a beautiful story. There's so many funny characters and just a way of life. Like she grew up as um, a road allowance person in Saskatchewan in the forties, which she, her so her chichim her great-grandmother was like fighting off the canadian soldiers when they were coming to like kick them off land and like she was really part of like the old way of life so maria really glimpsed and lived like not exactly the buffalo hunt but there was still um like migrations that metis people would do yearly and a way of life that she was sort of the last generation to Mm. really witness And then by the end of her life, like not at the end, but, you know, she's still doing very well, but she's like a completely modern, living in a completely modern life. And so in the book, it's just like, wow, I I really want to show, capture this sort of capsule. And it's good to bring back some of that work that was lost of hers, too. Like, I think that's a really noble mission. I mean, that editor who suggested she burned those pages, I mean, wonder where they are now. Yeah, exactly. Um, But yeah, I think it's really cool. And I think we talk a lot about how people who've looked at the book before wanted to focus on like the poverty or the sadness in the story. And that's there. But for us, especially it's like, well, this is just like the Métis story and and our people, it's like a beautiful story. There's so much beauty and there's so much fun and so much to be proud of. It's not like, it's not all trauma. It's like, there's, there's a lot of amazing things that we want to share and just like, you know, show it from our eyes. I think that's why it's so important to have people who are actually part of the communities that films are representing in the positions of, you know, uh, to make calls and to make suggestions and to do, because otherwise you have people who are viewing it as sort of from the outside, making calls about what it is and what it feels like on the inside. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm Latina and I've definitely seen a lot of stories about Latin American people be painted as this, like, you know, oh, they're so broke and everything about them sucks and it's so terrible. But look at them smiling in spite of all their circumstances. Yeah. Ah, the dancing. Oh, wow. look yeah. The, and yeah, the positive totally. outlook. It's like, well, you know, if you have such a negative view of like what it's really about, then maybe you shouldn't be making a movie about Latin American people, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or just you're just going to miss you because you have a preconception. You're just going to be looking exactly. for certain things, which means you're not seeing other things. I actually just saw a movie on HBO on Crave um, called The Stroll. Mm. I Did didn't you guys see about? this. It's a documentary. It's a documentary made by a trans woman about 
the trans sex workers in the meatpacking mm. district who worked this particular thing called the stroll. And she was very much just like, yeah, this is like our story about this place from yeah. us, from our perspective. And it was so different. And by the end, I was just like, trans rights, <laughs> like, yes, you know, just like, this is like, what an amazing story and like, such a co amazing community. And I just felt like I understood where they were coming from in a way that like, and she would intercut some of the footage that was done about them and stories that had been told uh -huh. about them. And it was so different. That's very smart. From what they were experiencing and their perspective. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. So I recommend that documentary. It was yeah. good. Well, we can't wait to see this upcoming adaptation. I'm hey. sure it's going to be absolutely awesome. Um, thank you. Well, we're crossing our fingers. We got faith. Everything I've seen from you has been great. So I don't believe this is going to be any different. Um, thank you for talking to us today. Um, Dark Nature is out now on Apple TV, YouTube movies. You can watch it on Super Channel if you're subscribed to Super Channel. Also on Amazon. Berkeley, are you ready to play some games? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. Our first game up is One Star Reviews. We're going to read one-star reviews of a film, and our guest is going to try and guess what movie those reviews are talking about. Of course, in honor of Berkeley's movie, we've chosen horror for this week's theme. Um, here comes the first review. All right. Okay. I love that their strategy to get the demon out was to have a boring old man come talk to it about religion. That would make me leave, too. The Exorcist? Correct. Wow. Very good. Someone gave The Exorcist a one star. Oh, <laughs> right? One what the star. heck? Wow. Yeah, like, I feel. Absolutely not. You cannot listen to critics. That's like one of the best movies ever made. That's crazy. But I like what Quentin Tarantino says about that movie. He says like, like the real premise of that movie that's amazing is that they positioned the Catholic Church as the thing that could get rid of a demon. <laughs> <laughs> That's so crazy. The Exorcist, like, is one movie that I put off watching for such a long time because I was like, this is going to be one of those movies that scares me too much. But then I, I took a class on religious experience in university a couple of years ago, and it was, like, in, an insane movie. To give it a one-star review is is crazy. But, you know, yeah. crowdsourced, just random people giving their thunkins. All right. Just sharing the thoughts <laughs> hot off their noggin. Okay, next up. I don't care anymore. I'm rating this a five. I have laughed at every little single stupid effing thing in the movie for my entire life, and I'm tired of pretending what's up isn't funny. You know what? That's the frog, right? That said what's up. The Budweiser frog, and then it got taken into a movie. Is it American? No, I saw you did. No, uh. <laughs> Scream? Ooh, so close, so, so close. close. Like one of the screams? Scream adjacent. I have scream adjacent, yeah. The, the, uh, I give up. Oh, Berkeley. Scary movie. Scary movie. So close. <laughs> oh, so close, so close. It's okay. We got one point in here. We got one more question for you to redeem yourself on. All right. All I'm saying is if this bitch wants to storm out of my fucking Samsung smart TV and ruin it, She's going to buy me a new one. The ring. The ring. There you go. Perfect. Back. Two out of three ain't bad, Barkley. Two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> okay. 
Time for game number two. It's called Why Are You Booing Me? I'm right. In this game, our guests are going to give their film hot takes. Berkeley, do you have any hot takes? It's more like observation. So I'd say Beaches is one of my favorite movies. Beaches. Giving some yes. love to Beaches. Underrated love classic. Beaches. Thank you. I agree. Love it. And the intro to Beaches where she gets lost at the like Atlanta boardwalk is almost a direct mm-hmm. ripoff from Imitation of Life by Douglas Sirk. Another melodrama. Well, film nerds keep an eye out Because for that I one. always like, was, yeah. And in Beaches, I'm like, you know what? It's a melodrama in the same tradition. And they literally took this scene and made almost the identical scene about like how two friends meet. All right. Well, thank you for sharing your hot takes with us. <laughs> we really appreciate that. Thank you. I'm excited to know yours. My movie hot take, okay, is that in the early 2000s and late 90s, the Disney Channel original movie Machine turned out some bangers. Some generation-defining bangers, okay? And for them to be looked at as some shoddy TV movies is messed up and wrong. And I think the High School Musical franchise proved that by going to the mm. theaters on their third movie and doing absolutely freaking amazing. These are these are masterpieces of musical theater yes. cinema, okay? I love they it. just are. I love it. And you know what? I will even say, I agree with you. Ah. People need to talk about this more. (laughs) Thank you, Berkeley. Thanks for talking to us, Berkeley. See you soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Okay, that's a wrap. (laughs) 